people are asking. Christians, some Christians are asking. Some were probably asking after the events of the mass shooting in Lewiston this week. Definitely some have been asking with the eruption of violence, war, terrorism in the Middle East. People have been asking for a while around Ukraine or the incredible suffering in parts of Africa. And in the spirit of the age of such hate and anger, people are asking. They're asking the question that's been asked for 2,000 years. They're wondering about the signs of the times. Is this the time? Is Jesus coming again? Is the end near? We act sometimes as if that's a very novel question when it is not. In fact, we, we go back to a place where they asked the same question. Disciples that gather around Jesus, it's now post-resurrection, and they've gathered on the mountain. This is it. It's the end of Jesus' earthly ministry physically. And this is what they ask him in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. They gathered around him, and they asked, Lord, are, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? See, they were asking the same question. But listen carefully to the answer Jesus gives. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. That's still true. Did you know that? It's not for you to know times or dates. But Jesus also gives us what we are to know. He goes on and says, but, you're not supposed to know that, but you need to know this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then it got really weird. Really weird. Jesus ascends in front of them into the sky. We, we hold to that as a core Christian belief and doctrine. We call it the ascension. And he ascends into the sky and they're left there on earth. And then it got really weird. Because Jesus said to them, be my witnesses. When the world seems unhinged and uncertain and unpredictable, because that's what it was for those disciples, Jesus says this, well, do this. Don't try to figure out this over here. Do this one thing. Be my witnesses. And here's what's really weird about that. Something you probably know. The, the word witness does not imply the safety of a courtroom. It has some of that meaning, but it doesn't imply that here. It really actually doesn't imply witnessing to someone about our faith. 
doesn't necessarily speak about that either. It could be that, but that's not really, I don't think, what Jesus is trying to say. So what is Jesus saying? Well, the word witness carries the same root as the word martyr. And many of you know that. So I think what Jesus is saying, he's saying, listen, don't, don't think about whether or not there's some earthly kingdom that's going to be established where suddenly you're going to be in power or something like that or that the end is coming or I'm returning. Don't think about that. He's saying your very lives will be the evidence of the kingdom of God. Giving up your lives for me will be the evidence. It's an evidence-based faith. Not about who has the most convincing argument, but rather who lives the most compelling life. Very few, very few have come to faith through argument. Many have come to faith by watching compelling lives. I know that's my story. Am I interested in convincing someone of my position or enabling them to have an encounter with the living God? Well, you see, in Scripture and in history, that's kind of where it gets weird. And the first question we ask today is, okay, so where does weird start? So, so last week when I mentioned what I was going to preach on this week, and I talked about Christianity being weird, the D. Loretto's 12-year-old grandson said, said it right out loud, maybe you heard him, he said, well, you're weird if you're not weird. So I'm assuming I'm with a bunch of weird people today. But for us to, amen, I heard that. <laughs> so where does weird start? Well, let's go to the bench and see what Jesus would have to say to us because he has something to say to us. We leave this place over here from the end of his earthly ministry and we go back to another time early in the ministry of Jesus where he's sitting on a hill, where he's sitting. And he's inviting them to come to him. And he's teaching them in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And we know from Luke's Gospel that the disciples looked at him and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Here's what's interesting. It wasn't like a prayer conference. It, it wasn't a book that Jesus said, okay, here are the ten rules of praying. And they said, yeah, I want to learn. They just watched him. They watched him pray. They he had a compelling life. And they said, teach us to pray. And then he gave us what we call the Lord's Prayer, but is really the disciples' prayer. And in that, in the very beginning of that, Jesus tells us where weird begins. Why don't you say these words with me? This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a lot of weirdness in this. Right at the start, there's weirdness. Our Father in heaven. What does that mean? 
Does that mean that God is like somewhere out on a cloud sitting comfortably? Somewhere out there in the sky, oftentimes we think heaven somewhere above the clouds, there's another layer of clouds and God is sitting there. Is that what this is saying? No, I think it's actually much weirder than that. What Jesus is trying to help us understand is that God is saturating every bit of the atmosphere we live in and he desires to do that, saturate every bit of the atmosphere of our hearts and lives. We talk about God being omnipotent, all-powerful. We talk about God being omniscient, all-knowing. And we talk about God being omnipresent, all-present, all the time. This is the way St. Paul put it in Acts 17. He said, in him we live and we move and we have our being. Say that with me. In him we live and we move and we have our being. But as Dallas Willard asks, do we actually believe this? Do we really believe this? Are we ready to automatically act as if we stand here and now and always in the presence of the great being? who overflows space, including the very atmosphere of this sanctuary. And wherever we go, I mean, think about it. We bump into the Holy Spirit all the time. Now, what those words do is they quickly, they actually disassemble a religious construct we've made where we compartmentalize life. We put our faith life over here, and then we put our family life over here, and then we put our play life over here, and our work life over here, and we, we just kind of compartmentalize it. And, oh, today is Sunday, and I go to church, and so now I'm going I'm to lean into my faith compartment. And we compartmentalize this idea of life and faith. But you see, this is where the weirdness, and I mean the weirdness, of Christianity finds its birthplace because we actually now live in every area of our lives in the thickness of God's presence. We're living in the thickness of God's presence. What do you do when you live in the thickness of God's presence? How do you live when you're living in the thickness of God's presence. While we are, as Jesus suggests, we are to earth the kingdom of God. Which means if we live in the thickness of God's presence, we live differently than the world around us. He said on earth as it is in heaven. Dallas Willard goes on, he says, we are to be in prayer what we are in life and to be in life what we are in prayer. Wow. When I read that, that that was a convicting statement. Whatever I am where no one else sees me when I'm praying, that's what I'm supposed to be where everyone sees me when I'm walking, talking, working. We are to orient our world around him. Now, just stop there for a moment because that's weird. Uh, That's weird in a world that insists that everything gets oriented around ourselves. Isn't that strange? I mean, that's a strange idea. 
But Jesus prays, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, where does that happen? Except in and through people. And that is what makes Christianity weird. That's where it starts. Here's the question. How weird does it get? How weird is weird? I was doing a lot of reading this week, um, especially from a book uh, called Keeping Christianity Weird um, itself, which I found after I started writing this message. I thought, oh, someone wrote a book on this. And they talked about some weird stuff, like the pastor who came um, repelling into the sanctuary to land right behind the pulpit and start preaching. I wonder what that would be like if we hung a line from there to here, and I went, shh. You know, the pastor who locked himself in a glass kind of cage for three days. Um, I'm not sure what he was trying to prove. But all these different things, all these weird things that people do in the name of Christianity that are just really more weird than Jesus wants to be weird. But how weird is weird? Well, the Bible tells us, believe it or not. Peter put it this way, one who followed Jesus, one who probably asked, Lord, teach us to pray. He said, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You see, if, if we're going to orient our lives around the kingdom of God, then we're going to look different. We're going to be different. We're going to, we're going to be viewed as weird, and we're going to see how weird it gets in a moment. But I want you to think about the fact how weird it is that you're sitting here today. But why do we get weird? Because relationship with Jesus is not and never has been transactional. It's never been about just getting to heaven. It's always been transformational. The world needs more people who, because of their weird beliefs, are transformed. Weird beliefs like this. We believe God created the heavens and the earth. We believe that God became man and dwelt among us. And then we beheld his glory. We believe that he did ascend. We also believe he poured out the Holy Spirit who is with us right now, who wants to fill each and every one of us. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. It is weird. Think about it. There's some weird things we believe. But they're transforming truths. And what they do in our lives is they change us. They transform us. And according to Scripture, we live culturally out of step. Foreigners and strangers in the ways of the world. Now, we get some hints from Jesus. As we're sitting with him on the bench, we get some hints from Jesus. From the Sermon on the Mount where we draw the Lord's Prayer from about what weirdness is all about. Jesus, Just read the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot of things Jesus says that... I'm sure the people in his day went, huh? And I know the people in our day go, what? But just from the Sermon on the Mount, here are some weird things. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Most of our world thinks that's weird. What about this one? But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. That kind of blows up the whole idea of people who give large amounts of money and then do a lot of self-promotion about their giving. Right? Here's one. Here's one you're never going to see on a Christmas ad. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Can you imagine some department store having that as their Christmas ad? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then this one. This one rubs our culture in a wrong way. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That should... That one makes me a little uncomfortable just because Jesus is saying, oh, it's so much more than words. Well, all of that weird stuff transformed the disciples in such a way that in 250 years they went from 12 to 2.5 million, 5% of the Roman Empire's population. And yet the world around them thought they didn't fit in. They thought they were a problem. They thought that they were odd. They didn't worship at the start one day a week. They gathered every day. They got all their resources together, rich and poor alike, put them together to make sure none of them would be without they acted with nonviolence to the violent persecution that was bestowed upon them. And in the eyes of the world around them, they were weird. They were so weird that they became such a threat that there were accusations made against the early church because of how strange they were. For example, they were accused of inappropriate relationships because they called each other brother and sister. They were accused of cannibalism because they were accused of eating flesh and drinking blood in one of their rituals. We call it communion. They were considered suspect because they valued and they cared for the poor, which was viewed as a sign of weakness. They practiced an ethic that valued sexual purity and promoted the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman, all this in a cultural environment that really was a sexual free-for-all. They had this amazing view of humanity as image-bearers. Let me give you the contrast to their view. This is from an actual letter written from a Roman soldier who is on duty somewhere away from his family. So he writes his wife. And he writes this letter and he says, you know what? Don't worry, I'm fine. He says this, take care of our child. And then he says, I'm going to send pay home. I'm going to send you my check. But then in one sentence he says this, listen closely. Above all, if you bear a child and it is male, let it be. If it is female, cast it out. You see, that was the practice called expositio, which was normal legal, completely expected in the Roman Empire, you didn't want a child 
You can take it down to the river and throw it in the river. You can dispose of unwanted newborns. And the Christians stood against that. And they were considered strange for doing so. They also refused to draw lines in the burial grounds. And they didn't have a burial ground for the poor and a burial ground for the rich. The catacombs had rich, poor, different ethnicities, different peoples. They didn't draw any lines. Why, why did they do all that? Because they believed everyone bore the image of God. And then here's the, this is the funniest thing to me, but it's really rather amazing, and I think still current. The Christians were considered atheists. <laughs> right? They're considered atheists because they did not believe in the polytheism of the day. They didn't have enough gods. They only believed that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. And because of that belief of the singularity of the Savior of the world, they were viewed as atheists. They were viewed as unspiritual. But you see, when you follow Jesus, contrary to paganism, they, they could pick up all different gods. If they would have followed Jesus and said, you know, I'm still going to follow Zeus or Diana, I'm still going to do that. They would be considered normal. But because they would leave the pagan gods, they were considered atheists. As I said, they were radically committed to the compassionate care and hospitality to the poor. So much so, it created controversy at the highest levels of the government of the Roman Empire. The Emperor Julian, who himself, at 25, left the Christian faith, wrote a letter to a pagan priest complaining. And this was his complaint. It is disgraceful that when no Jew ha ever had to beg, and the impious Galileans, those are the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people, the pagans, lack aid from us. In other words, the Christians are showing us up. He goes on, and it's, this letter is like, forever long. And he makes this argument of how they are supposed, they need to imitate the Christians. How the pagans need to imitate the Christians because of how the Christians care for the poor. What a challenge that is. How, how beautiful it is that, you know, imitation is the best compliment. So Christianity got really weird. But so that we don't think that Christianity is just weird somewhere 2,000 years ago, we can go on and on and on and talk about the ways in which the weirdness of Christianity has contributed to the world in many ways. But think about this. What do your non-believing neighbors and agnostic and atheist friends actually believe about your faith? I have some of those. I have some relatives and friends like that. They think our faith should be weird. Just a couple more famous examples. Some of you know the magician duo Penn and Teller. Well, Penn Gillette is a self-proclaimed atheist. He met a man who gave him a Bible. Just kindly gently, gave him a Bible, and he said this, 
shared how polite the man was. He was so touched by this, he said, if you believe there is a heaven and hell and you think it's not worth telling someone this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? Ooh. To believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell people? This man cared enough about me to proselytize. Wow. That maybe doesn't make you uncomfortable, but I'm really uncomfortable. I'm saying, oh, yes, Jeff. People come to my mind who I need to talk to about my love for God and God's love for them. Tom Holland wrote a book that's three inches thick called Dominion. Tom Holland is a British historian. His book is all about the impact of the Christian faith on the moral formation of the world. It's a powerful book. Some days Tom Holland says that you know, he really feels like he's a Christian. Other days he says he wants nothing to do with it. He is kind of like an agnostic floating in the middle somewhere. He says this, churches need to absolutely embrace their beliefs rather than being slightly embarrassed about them. The churches have to lay claim to everything that is weirdest, most countercultural, most peculiar. And they need to major on that. And then Ben Sixsmith is a rather famous, self-proclaimed. This is his description of himself. He's a, an open, curious agnostic. And he openly declares that he is not a Christian. But he nails it when he says, using his language, that Christians, whether they're progressive or conservative, want everything the secular world has, but with a twist of Christianity. He goes on, says this, I am not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me un feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing really like inspiring about them. He then says this, so if Christianity is such an essential, inessential add-on, why become a Christian? If Christianity is such an optional thing, if Christianity is you know, not essential to the people that I'm watching who say they're Christians, why should I become a Christian? What's the argument? See, the argument of just, well, you'll get to go to heaven is not enough. Now, commenting all this, Christy Wood, especially on Ben Sixsmith, who, who, who really struggled as a curious open agnostic with a lot of the sins of the church fathers of our day, of pastors abusing power and being abusive in many different ways. That's where some of his comments come from. She said, let's be brutally honest. We are in love with this screwed up temporary world and we are obsessed with making it into our own version of paradise. Far more in love and far more obsessed than we are with the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Whew. Wow, that's a lot, isn't it? But he said, 
pray this way. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I don't know about you, but I find me, my own heart and life, disrupted. Jesus used the term conviction. And so I have to ask myself some questions, and you can decide if you need to ask yourself these. Is my life, my language, my attitude, my actions, and my lifestyle giving anyone a reason to believe in the life-transforming grace of God? Is it? I have to be honest and say, <laughs> I know there's, there's days when it's not. But overall, in the body of work of my life, is my life, my language, my attitude, my actions, and my lifestyle giving anyone a reason to believe? Let me just bring that right down to where we eat. Am I giving my children, my adult children, reason to believe? Am I giving my siblings, am I giving them reason to believe? Am I giving my congregation reason to believe? Do others see my life as different? One whose life has been oriented around the kingdom of God found in Jesus Christ. See, I guess what I'm asking, I think what Jesus is asking us today, and I have not left our core text today. Is my life an answer to this one prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's what Jesus says to us from the bench. Dear friends, my dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. It eats your soul away. I urge you to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, and they did, and they will, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Maybe it was the famous 17th century philosopher, Blaise Pascal, who said it best when he said this, Make religion attractive. Make good men wish it were true. And then show that it is. Show them that it is. In all of life, and with all of your life, keep Christianity weird. Pray with me. Our Father,
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.